<laughs> I totally forgot. Sorry, uh, audio people. <laughs> uh, good morning. Good morning in this weird and wonderful time. Well, I don't know about wonderful. Um, it, if any of you have ever seen the chuck wagon, the Orchard Hill chuck wagon in action, I know that you've been totally amazed, perplexed and amazed because the chuck wagon, if you don't know, it's this food truck that has been, or it's a trailer that's been turned into a food truck that Orchard Hill has, and we take it around from different events. It goes to caravan, it goes to um, the uh, Orchard Hill family camping, it goes to picnic in the park, and what you'll see if you're ever around it is like 100 or 200 people who come walking up to this thing, and within minutes they all miraculously have food. It's just so amazing. I say miraculously, but it's actually not a miracle at all. It's like a huge amount of work. I, I emailed one of the people involved with it and said, like, tell me what it takes to do a meal. And so this next slide tells some of the things they said. It, it's eight, about eight hours of planning and purchasing and the first preparation. And then other people come in. These are person hours. And then other people come in. There's eight to 15 hours of food prep. Then there's two to four hours of packing the trailer up and they take it to the place that it's supposed to be. Then there's 20 to 25 hours of the hot prep and the serving and the cleanup. 40 to 50 hours, people hours for a meal, one meal. It takes a lot of work, right? It takes a lot of these ordinary people who are doing this extraordinary thing. That's the series we're in. Ordinary people doing extraordinary things, having an extraordinary impact on the results of the stories that they're in. And so on caravan, on family camping, on picnic in the park, this, this, this uh, chuck wagon has an extraordinary but sometimes almost invisible impact on what's going on in that, in that story. Um, so I wanna, I, I'm, I'm going to be thinking about these other people who have had an extraordinary impact in a similar kind of chuck wagon way, in that sort of serving and making the whole thing work kind of way. First, I want to ask you a question. How many people do you think were following Jesus from town to town to town as he went around? He, you know, he, he preached for about 30 months, we think. Um, how many people in that stayed with him that whole 30 months? What's your guess? I would guess most of us, our first guess would be 12. There was 13 people. There was him and 12 disciples, right? That's our first guess. But the Bible tells us a very, very different story in a, just a few little tiny verses. The Bible tells us some other things that might make you raise your eyebrows a little bit and say, whoa, I never thought of it that way. So one, I, have a, I have a slide here with a few different verses. One is John. In John, Jesus says this really hard thing and then people are complaining and then he turns around to them and says an even harder thing. He says, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And then we get this great verse. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like he he, he, he kind of knew something was up and people weren't all there. So he says this very hard thing. And many of his disciples left. Well, wait a second. I didn't know he had many disciples that weren't a part of those 12. Yeah, he did. Check this out. In Luke, Luke chapter 10. Luke is a, a historian, so he gives us numbers more than just the word many. Luke chapter 10, it says, After this, the Lord appointed 72. After this, by the way, 
What just had happened was the Lord told the 12 disciples to go into villages two by two and not carry anything and preach the kingdom of God is coming and heal people and cast out demons. And they did it and they came back and they were super excited. They were like, it worked. It was so cool. So then Jesus turns to 72 others, 72 others and sent them out two by two to all the other towns. So, as like an extreme introvert, I often see this story and the one before as an introverted story. Like, yeah, sometimes you just got to turn to the people and like, hey, like go to the store or something. I don't know. Go get out of here. But I don't think that was what Jesus was doing. But he turns to 72 people and says, go. Who were those 72? Who were they? The Bible refers to them as disciples. In Acts chapter 1, same guy, Luke, the historian, is writing. Now this is just after Jesus died. Jesus had just died. In Luke chapter 1, it says, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering 120. 120 people are there after Jesus died, but before the Spirit comes. You would think that some of the crowd would have dissipated once the leader was crucified, once he was killed, once he was tortured. You would think some would leave, and maybe some did. But Peter stands up, and he looks, and there's 120 people who are faithful followers. That's amazing. Are you getting your mind around this now? This is a big change of mindset, right? As Jesus is moving through the territories, there's maybe, what, 50, 70, 100 people who are following him. From place to place. And you might think, oh, they were only there a little bit of the time. Well, Luke, or in Act, Luke writes in Acts, he's saying that we're going to have to pick a replacement for Judas because Judas betrayed Jesus and then Judas killed himself. So we have to pick a replacement. And, and Peter says this, therefore it's necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time that the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning at John's baptism, which is, the, which is like the symbolic start of Jesus' ministry, beginning at John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken from us. We have to pick one of those people who was with us that entire time. So there was multiples to pick from, Right? This just warps your mind a little bit as you start to realize, wait a second, this was a great big group. None of the videos we see, the Jesus videos we see, or, or the Sunday school lessons we have, shows any more than 12 people. So how, this is where my mind goes then. How did that work? Like, how did it work? You have this, whatever number you want to pick, 50, 100 people following him around. How did it work? They had to eat all the time. Anytime you guys have like a Thanksgiving crew that comes and they stay there for three days, you know like the relentlessness of meals that just keep coming. That happened to them too. They ate. How did that work? How did they do that? Okay, we have just a few tiny peeks into that. One of them is the one I'm going to be focused on today. In Luke chapter 2, very, very, very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Luke says this. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, who was from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. 
That's one clue of how this worked. One clue of how this worked was there's a group of many women who supported this whole roaming troop out of their own means. In the first century, this is a pretty amazing thing, and I think that's why Luke calls it out. Because there was, we get references in other places where there were some men probably included in that supporting out of their own means. But Luke, as a historian, is like, wait, you got to understand, there was something really strange going on here. There was a group of women who financed this, who were the venture capitalists, who, who organized it all, who took care of the logistics, who made this troop of 100 people able to work. All right, so I'm going to take a little tangent here because, you know, sometimes I really like to laugh when I'm reading the Bible. This is just an amazing, I never, I never saw this until I was preparing for this. Another reference to those exact same women is in Matthew. This is when Jesus is hanging on the cross, so I'm sorry I'm laughing. I'm really, really sorry. But the scripture says this, many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee. Another reference that Follow Jesus from Galilee means from the beginning of his ministry, they were there. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Why is that funny? Because those guys are disciples. So part of this group was the disciples' moms. Disciples' moms were with them. I, I can't even get my head around that. I laughed so hard so many times this week. Can you imagine the conversations? Mom, right? Hey, they come up back all excited. We were out on a boat, and there was a storm, and Jesus stood up, and he calmed the storm. You mean you guys were out on the lake in a thunderstorm? <laughs> right? Mom, you're missing the point. Oh, my heavens, I laughed really hard, so I hope you guys can do that. Let's go back to this verse, though. The verse we're looking at is in Luke, supported by their own means. So I look at this verse from Luke. These are actually three verses that are on the screen right now. And I pulled out four different lessons that I learned from this. One is Jesus chose to li live an ordinary life. He chose to live this sort of plain life. And, and by that, obviously, I'm not ignoring his, his, the miracles that he did. But those miracles were like a sign of his deity. They weren't how he maintained. They weren't how he survived. They weren't how he lived. And yeah, there was crowds and things that you guys don't have. But his, his way of living was simple, was ordinary. He could have lived it a whole bunch of other ways. He didn't need this this to be the way it was lived, where people supported him out of their own means. He could have created food every day, right? They could have just, the 12 of them could have just woke up, the 70 of them, the 100 of them, woke up and there was food on the ground like that happened in the Old Testament. Or Jesus could have just been, he woke up at 3 in the morning and he just made all this huge feast appear. He could have done that. Remember, one of his miracles was to catch a fish with a coin in the mouth so he could tell a story about money. He could have done that over and over every day. They could have just caught fish with coins in their mouth, and they could have had money to pay for things. He could have, he could have had the fishermen, the, the, his disciples who were fishermen catch piles of fish every morning and then go sell them at a marketplace. Right? He could have turned water into wine over and over. It was the best wine. They could have had their own label, you know, like Christ Merlot. It would have been super popular. It would have made a huge amount of money. He could have done like crazy David Blaine style street magic and gotten YouTube rights and made tons of money. 
No, no, no. He lived simply. He lived simply. He had people who had to find and cook and, 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 and clean up after food. I think there's a lesson in that for us. I think Jesus knew something about living simply. Once Jesus said, he looks at this rich man and he says, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And, and, and I don't believe he's talking about how hard it is to get into heaven. I think he's talking about how hard it is to be in the kingdom of God, to be living like God, to be living in the way that God wants us to live. How hard is it when you're rich to live like that? Because your life is not simple. It's complicated. In fact, Jesus said this also. When you're rich, he's taught, he told a story and he says, then the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Right? Simple. A guy I like to read, Richard Rohr, said this, possessions and soul seem to operate in inverse proportion to one another. Only through simplicity can we find deep contentment instead of perpetually striving and living unsatisfied. So Jesus believed that it was good to live an ordinary life. So sometimes we're striving for an extraordinary, like superheroish life. And Jesus was striving for an ordinary life. Okay, number two I learned is that Jesus chose to depend on ordinary people to complete his work. He chose that. And guess what? I think there's a lesson there because he's still choosing that. That's still what he's doing. He's choosing to have ordinary people complete his work. In fact, I want to say this. If we aren't generous with our time, with our money, with, with our caring, with our, with our joy, if we aren't generous, there is no Jesus. If we aren't generous, there is no Jesus. Because Jesus is choosing to live the same way now as he chose then, with ordinary people making his ministry happen. Paul said, now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And yes, that's a metaphor. But it's also, there's, it's actually truth. You are the hands and the feet and the mouth and the wallet of Jesus. So do you wish people would behave more like Jesus, but you're not helping them? Do you participate in the church, but you don't finance it? Do you wish the homeless had houses, but you're unwilling to do anything to make that happen? Do you pray for people who are affected by job losses because of COVID, but you won't send them any money to help them up? Do you wish the system was more even-handed for black and brown people, but you don't want to get involved? Do you see a neighbor who needs your help, but you shut the blinds? Jesus doesn't redeem the world without us doing work. Someone has to pay for it. Someone has to cook. Someone has to clean up after lunch and then has to do it again tomorrow. Okay, I got to keep going. Jesus, my third point that I learned from this, was Jesus saw past our cultural biases, their cultural biases, when he was picking his ordinary people or when his ordinary people picked him and he let them follow and more than that, he didn't just see past it. He was willing, totally willing, to be associated with the worst of it. He was willing to have the worst kinds of people associated with his ministry. 
So let's look at just what this verse said. First thing it says about the first one is, Some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Now, there's two ways of in- that scholars interpret that little line there. One way they interpret it is, it means that demons had come out and people had been healed of diseases. Like, it's literal. It says what it says. You should read it. Another way that people interpret it, though, is to say that this is a euphemism for the kinds of sins that these women had committed, that they were sinful people before they were part of his ministry, that Mary Magdalene was maybe a harlot, that these women who were able to not have husbands and families that they had to be with, but instead follow Jesus around, likely were sex workers before they were doing what they were doing with Jesus. Whichever way you read that, I want to say, I think the point is, Jesus let them be with him. Whether they were people who had demons cast out of him and diseases healed, or whether that's a euphemism for that they were healed of their sinfulness, Jesus still let that be his main, like the main people who financed and did all the logistics for his ministry as it moved through the world. So Jesus was super willing to to be around that kind of thing. Number two, this, this next person that gets mentioned is, is uh, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Okay, guys. But don't just read past that. Herod is Herod. His dad's name is Herod. So that dad, Herod, is the dad, is the guy who killed the kids trying to kill, because he was trying to kill Jesus, right? He heard that Jesus was born. And he, didn't, and he heard that Jesus was going to create a kingdom, and he didn't want that to happen. So he mass murders a bunch of children in order to kill Jesus. Not a big fan of Jesus, right? His son is named Herod, and that's the Herod that's referenced here. That Herod is also a killer. That Herod is also a bad man. In fact, that Herod kills Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, because John said something negative about his marriage. That Herod's no fan of Jesus, right? Well, his chief of staff, the man who runs his whole household, who runs his, and this is not a small thing, we're talking about a king here, right? His chief of staff, that guy's wife, funds Jesus' ministry. (laughs) I mean, there's something funny and subversive about that. But there's also something like, wait a second, wait, wait, wait. Are you saying that Jesus' ministry was paid for by a mass murderer's money? I'm not saying that, but I, yeah. You know, I can tell you for sure, if I was on the board of directors, I was on the board of directors here for a long time, I can tell you for sure, if someone said, hey, we just got a check from a mass murderer and we're wondering if we should use it to fund our ministry, I'd be like, nope, no, no, we're out. So this one twists me. But Jesus was willing to look past this in some way, somehow, for some reason. I'm not pretending I understand why he did that. The third woman mentioned here is Susanna. I love this. I love this. What we get about her is semicolon, Susanna, semicolon. After we just, after we just heard women who had spirits, evil spirits, demons taken out of them, cured of evil diseases, the wife of the 
of the chief of staff of a mass murderer and Susanna, <laughs> right? I mean, right? Can you believe it? Susanna. I have no idea, <laughs> but I think it's funny. So this is not just in this verse. Jesus did this. Jesus' inner circle was made out of people who you wouldn't think would be there. One of the people in Jesus' inner circle, his 12 disciples, was what, what, the, what we, they called a collaborator. He collaborated with the government. Think of him as an insider, because this is what he was, an insider who gets rich off the taxes of his own people while looking the other way as the government does things that are horrendous. An insider who's getting rich off the taxes that are being paid by the people while looking the other way when the government does something bad. That, that guy is on Jesus' inner circle. And an opposite of him is on Jesus' inner circle, a guy that's called a, a zealot, which is a, which is a person who thinks that the only way that we can get rid of this evil government is for violence to happen, for us to start some sort of violent protesting. He's on the inner circle. Again, those kinds of things bend your head. But regardless of where you end up there, you can see why, you can see why the Pharisees and the scribes were like, this guy isn't right. This is not God. This is not who you should be following. Both the Pharisees and the scribes, Luke said, starts grumbling and say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Okay, moving along. I learned, I learned that Jesus w looked past some things. Then I learned that Jesus included women in his ministry. And more than women, it was, it was classes of people who were put down. But, 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 but through these verses, we learned that he included women. Don't start putting these women in a category of, like of service work, that they were sort of secondary, that they were way off in the distance as the men were out doing these glorious things. Luke makes sure we know these women funded this thing out of their own means, that they were powerful women. And that you don't have to think very hard to think if 100 people are moving for 30 months and someone did the logistics for all of that, I can't do that. I'm not that good. I, have no, I would have no idea where to start. Jesus picked these women or these women picked him. They were the bank. They were the venture capital. They were the financers. They coordinated the logistics. It's so great to hear that Jesus' ministry was so radically female. Again, I think this is why Luke is pointing this out because he, Luke leaves out that some of the men who were also financing in that particular verse. I think he's doing that on purpose to say there was, there was a really unusual thing going on here with how Jesus accepted women. And that kept going, by the way, as the church was in its first infancy, that kept going. At the end of Romans, Romans chapter 16, I've really become fascinated by Romans chapter 16 in the last little bit. Just go, just go read, although you're going to have to Google all the names because you can't tell if they're men or women. But I have a little slide here to help you out. Just go read the beginning of, of Romans chapter 16. Because what strikes me about it as you read it is how naturally Paul is just going back and forth between men and women and calling them both, in both cases, he's calling them these high and lofty titles. 
He doesn't seem to like separate them into a group of women and a group of men. He just, he just tells you, hey, bless, say hi to all these people. And as you, as you look through the names and figure out if they're male or female, they're just really evenly split. And they include these women in chapter 16. Phoebe, who was a missionary, who Paul said, hey, whatever, she's coming to you. Whatever she wants, give it to her. She's super important. And we have Priscilla, who is a teacher, who had a house church in her house. We have Junia, who was a missionary and who was labeled as an apostle. The top, the top title you could have, an apostle. And then if that's not honoring enough, Paul goes on to say, she was in Christ before me, which in that time means there's an honor there. There's a, there's a precedence there. Typhania and Typhosa. <laughs> I bet these were wonderfully awesome women. If you have those names, you've got to be awesome. Workers, hard workers in the Lord. The next one is beloved or esteemed and a hard worker. And, and then there we have a spiritual mother to Paul. Anyway, Romans chapter 16 is just such a great uh, uh, picture of the church, really including men and women. And I want to say again, I just want to repeat, Jesus wasn't just that way with women. That's, that's, that's the focus of these verses. But he was with that way with foreigners and with slaves and with other kinds of people who other people rejected. So, my conclusion, what did we learn? We looked at these one, three little verses that didn't seem to say very much. We learned that Jesus' movement started with ordinary people who were willing to live simply. Ordinary people who were willing to live simply. We learned that ordinary people just doing what they could is what powered it all. That Jesus depended on them. That he didn't do his ministry unless ordinary people did their part. It also was driven by ordinary people who were willing to get their reputations dirty. See, Jesus wasn't the only one with a bad reputation in that group. They all were getting a bad reputation by who was included. And it was made up of ordinary people who otherwise, culturally, were systematically put out of power. I think there's a powerful thing to be learned about ordinary people in those few verses. I'm praying that we can... Go forward being ordinary people. One thing I was thinking this week is, in light of this, if you're looking for a miracle to happen, tag, you're it. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, sometimes that kind of message lays heavy weight on our heart. Your ministry doesn't go forward without us. But in other ways, we also see that the kinds of people you used were, were all themselves so random and mixed up and, and so often not perfect that maybe there is hope for us. Maybe by being our ordinary selves, we actually can help you. So my prayer for us my prayer for us as a community, as a people here, is that we do something, that we lean into our ordinariness, figure out things that we can do to help your ministry move forward on earth, that we can be used to bless a broken world.